Transplanter RPG is proudly sponsored by at Dimitri Opines on Twitter. That is at D-M-I-T-R-Y-O-P-I-N-E-S. And Explain Trade, a negotiation skills training consultancy believing in the power of D&D and Transplaner's potential to grow, tell great stories, and lift up our community. Explain Trade trains negotiators for governments, big companies, NGOs, and offers e-learning courses for individuals looking to get a better deal from their boss. Level up your charisma score and check out explaintrade.com. Hey there, thank you for tuning in to Trans Planar RPG. We are an all transgender, people of color led, 100% homebrew, Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition live streamed actual play campaign set in an original non colonial anti orientalist world. I am your game master, Connie, my pronouns are they, he, and she, and my cast is as follows. C. Thomas plays Oka Hien, an Osamar Bloodhunter. Max Guo plays Dewey Quirk, an Aarakocra Artificer. Erica Flaidlin plays V. Noxherzo, an Elf Sorcerer. Valiant Dorian plays Vasca, a Yuanti Bard. Hamna Shahid plays Jaron Cotter, a Dragonborn Rogue. Dare Hickman plays Gentle, a Triton Monk. Quinn B. Rodriguez plays Sitlali, a Changeling Cleric. And Austin Knight plays Abiku Ishtar, a Reborn Goliath Ranger. So, with that out of the way, here are the content warnings for this episode. Content warnings for this episode include apocalypse, war, death of loved ones, fantasy violence, gore, blood and bloodletting, romance, flirting, kissing, complex and complicated relationships, nightmares, and hallucinations. Arc 8, Episode 5. Thank you for coming. From Eulogy for a Dying World by Connie Chong. Uh, so everybody now, please, one and all, make your fate rolls, which is going to be a straight or rather a gay D20 with no modifiers. No modifiers. Let's go down the line, starting with Jaron. What'd you get? Sorry, I, w- I didn't even roll it yet. Uh, six. Yikes. <laughs> okay, a six from Jaron. Gentle. Uh, the famously lucky number, 13. 13, not bad. Sit lolly. 18, baby. Ooh, 18. Dewey. Just eight. Ooh, an eight. Got Jar LC coming in hot with the sub tens. Vasanti. 11. Uh, barely scraping by. Bosca. Uh, 18, just like Sitlali, and I think that's gay of us. That is ga- the The soul mages have arrived. Oka. Also a six. I hate that I'm matching, but also a six. <laughs> matching with Jaron. And a Viku. Hi, I'm doing my best, natural 20. <laughs> Everyone get on the plenty of room on the back. <laughs> Aviku leading the charge. That makes sense. That makes sense. Wonderful. Okay, so uh, after our fate rolls are done, we can just put that to the side right now. Don't worry about it too much. Uh, moving on to the title of this episode. The title of this episode is Thank You for Coming uh, from Eulogy for a Dying World by Connie Chong. And the full verse reads as follows. One last gamble, they say. Mouth brimming with dead cards. One last play, one last turn, one last prestige to set the stage on fire. Don't you know the best part of any magic trick is the ending? The curtains are silk and they are closing. They are draped around her shoulders, and she is counting the minutes until the finale. 
each grain of sand, every tick of the second hand against the brass rungs. Thank you for coming. It was a wild ride, wasn't it? Take your jackets at the door. The missus and I have a death to discuss. The lights harden, dim, close, like the last bar on the last street in the last world. The stage is the only thing left. Just the stage, just the tape, just the embrace and the touch. The hands on your hip, the lips in your hair. Heads or tails, darling. Let's bet on the end of all things. I'll go first to spare you. You'll go first to spare me. We'll go together, and nothing will be spared. At the top of round three, during the concert for the end of the world, oblivion turns in the air, their hair resplendent, their eyes piercing, their skin thrumming power. In the shattered, crimson sky that consumes the horizon, her eyes grow dull, quiet, still. It feels as though every strand of power has been pulled from the monstrous corneas dwarfing the horizon and threaded into Oblivion's soul. Does Oblivion even have a soul? What an interesting question. Let's find out. But first, a rearrangement of spotlights is in order, isn't it? Everyone except a Biku, please re-roll initiative. All right, let's start with Jaron. 13. 13, Gentle. Uh, 19. 19 from Gentle, sit lolly. 23. 23, Dewey. Also 23. Ooh, also 23. Visanti. 22. 22, Vasca. Also a 22. What the heck? Oka? 18. 18. Beautiful. So, our highest is a 23. So, Sitlali and Dewey, what are your base dexterity scores? Theirs is higher. Okay, cool. So, Dewey would go first. So, actually, before Dewey goes, we're actually going to hold on the battlefield. Because it is at this exact moment while Oblivion is humming with power, while the battlefield bristles with monsters and beasts and screaming soldiers, while paragons and keepers alike stagger from grievous injuries and even more grievous morale, it is at this exact moment that the ancestors arrive. Bleeding into existence across the arena are dozens, hundreds, Thousands of spirits from Andake's ancient past, the Titans. Ghostly forms of a people who lived and died as warriors explode onto the battlefield, their mouths and throats brimming with battle cries from a long forgotten past. These titans collide immediately in an onslaught against the stranger's forces, swinging spectral weapons, casting spectral spells, their blades passing harmlessly through Andakan allies, but cleaving with deadly force into the bodies of empty beasts. 
And even the shortest of these titans stand well over seven feet, the majority of them clearing eight, nine, ten, even twelve feet in stature. And a few of them, a dozen, several dozen, explode into even bigger forms as these ancestral spirits shift. And we see massive, gigantic mages pile-driving hammers the size of towers into the flanks of face-stealers, knocking them clear across the battlefield. A draconic mage, all tufted fur and spiraling antlers, slams into a hydra flare, smashing the beast out of existence, tearing it limb from limb from limb. Several gigantic mages pile onto a single entropic beast, this shimmering leviathan of the oil of Mahu, and slam it onto the ground in a literal clash of titans. But that's not all. Echoing across this battlefield, harmonizing perfectly with the titans' ancient battle cries, is the song of Tungal. The last vestige of magic from deep within the chasm welling up, up, up into Andakan reality. And this song takes physical form as it weaves through the battlefield, lifting the spirits of all who hear its courageous, invigorating harmony. It is a sunbeam piercing the clouds of a dark night sky. It is a hand outstretched for a soldier laid low. It is hope at the bottom of a well. Fortune smiles, my friends, and now each of you gain the second boon. As grief, courage, and love from the memory of Tungal's song surges through your souls, all of you regain full health. All of you. Except, I'm, except I'm, Jaron, I'm looking right? at Jaron. Yeah, except Jaron, actually. Uh, except Jaron in this... <laughs> Except you're on in this form. I don't know if boons apply to empty beasts. Uh, so, except you're on in this form. We'll get to that in a second. Um, I think while this is happening, as this melody and harmony is weaving its way tangibly over the battlefield, washing over your bodies, stitching up wounds, erasing bruises, like, I think blood crumbles into dust, like, off of your bodies, your own blood, right? And scorch marks just also crumble into nothingness. As this is happening, the door to Dalapathi Sayid's farmhouse slams open, and on the threshold we see Shrinyi, Wooming, Halo, and Abiku awake. Abiku, why don't you please roll initiative to join the fight? E24. T- 24? Abiku, you're up first. What do you do? <laughs> I. Sh- I need to find Dewey. I need to find the smartest person I know, and that is Dewey Cork. <laughs> you cast your gaze across this battlefield. It's chaos. It's chaos. And Abiku, I think your blood, the still blood, starts pumping, right? As your soul, if not your heart, begins to thrum with energy. It's like this ancestral magic is like singing through your heart as well, singing through your spirit, singing through your soul, your ghost that is piloting your body. You look around and like, 
It's sort of like a hazy, kind of shaky like camera as we swing around from your perspective. We see on one side of the battlefield this huge entropic beast being laid low by these gigantic titans. On another side of the battlefield, an entire battalion of like several dozen soldiers are like hewing and clawing and slashing their way through these like shock troops of empty beast infantry, basically. And you see your friends scattered amongst this battlefield in various positions, like fighting for their lives. You see Jaron question mark as like a huge kind of twisted empty beasts having clashed with Oka, question mark, who seems to be shrinking down to their size right now. And you also see floating above it all, oblivion and gentle. You see Dewey at the periphery of the clash between Jaron, question mark, and Oka, question mark. Uh, they are next to Kane and huddled maybe a couple dozen feet away at the edge of the stage are Lilith and Sitlali. What do you do? <laughs> um... I think, point of order, is real Dr. O with me? No. Okay. The real Dr. O that you saw in the vault seemed to be their soul or their consciousness. Their body is floating above you. Heard. Just wanted to make sure before I just like left them sitting there. I think I would kiss Shunyi and be like, I, I will, uh, it's time to go to work. Uh, and I will start running over towards Dewey. Yeah, Srini kisses you back, nods, uh, smiles at you, and as she turns, as she steps forward, you see her stepping into her full draconic form. Like one step and then she's huge. Like she's stepping into becoming this gigantic draconic mage, right? Like exploding, ballooning upward in a pillar of scales, fur, and antlers. And you turn toward Dewey. I think you're able to make it to Dewey's side, like on your turn if you want with your speed. Yes. Dewey, hi, hello. Uh, sorry I am late to the work party. Um, so, I learned a lot, and I'm doing my best to remember it all, and you're the smartest person here, and I think you could do what we need to with this information, because I you barely got it. I was in the dream plane. I found Dr. Aluso. Uh, they are, well, part of them is okay. The part of them that's there was okay. And they said, while they had been oblivion, that like oblivion is like sad because magic and f magic and for fortune are those the two presets anyway magic and fate that's their name fate sorry f they starts with an f magic and fate didn't give oblivion a job they just you know they like they made this whole existence thing and they're like an oblivion kick rocks who cares and so oblivion is sad and alone and wants to be included and I don't know what to do with that, but that seems important. Oblivion sad. Got it. Make Oblivion. How do we make Oblivion happy? I don't know, but they can make things because they they made Dr. Aluso because Dr. Aluso did not exist before. So maybe if we talk to, I don't know if Fated Magic came or not, but if we, if they show up and we can be like, they could make something for, uh, Dr. Aluso called it a journey, then maybe they won't destroy everything so okay so we have to make something on par with this journey created by two precepts yeah or ask them to change it because like oblivion has tried to get help to change it but then they accidentally kill people and then they get more sad and then they try again and then other people are just afraid of them because they're always just the bad guy so maybe if we can find something for him to do that doesn't make him a bad guy okay uh I'll, I'll relay this to a 
Is everything okay? <laughs> what is... I missed a lot. You learned all of this in your power nap? Yes. You are incredible. Oh, thank you. Uh, oh no, duck! And Dewey, I think... <laughs> I think pulls a Biku down as something was flying over her head. I love that. Uh, actually, a Biku, as your defense roll, why don't you make me either a dex or a con saving throw? You got it, boss. I will choose dexterity. I made the correct choice. <laughs> that is a 22. 22. Okay. So, Dewey, as you pull a Biku down, I think it's this, like, huge hulking umbral specter, right? The grave digger that has this huge cloak of shadow drawn over its hunched form. And it, it's shovel that it's holding in like one hand, I think sights across the battlefield as it's almost like a fucking Elden Ring boss. It's huge, it's just <laughs> like pummels in like a single swing. And I think you're like dragging a Biku down, right? And a Biku, like both of you don't get hit by like the top of the spade that's like as white across as maybe um, a train, uh, but you do feel like the gust of wind cutting over the top of your head, thrumming with entropic energy. So, Abiku, you're going to take a little bit of damage with that save. You're going to take 70 points of necrotic damage uh, as the this, like, void magic just washes over the top of your head. Uh, can I, can I do my thing to resist that? Yeah, yeah, yeah what is cool. that? What do you do? Reflective resistance, where I can make myself resistant to the damage for that instance. Okay, so that's going to be 35 points of necrotic damage instead. That sounds more reasonable. Yeah, if it's okay with you, I think we feel and see this ancestral magic weaving almost like a gelatinous carapace over your body of just song and melody as it takes like some of that damage off of you as some of it just bounces away from your soul. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I'll be cool sit down for a second. I love that. I think actually that's a smooth transition down to Dewey. So Dewey, as you're hunched down, I think Kane is also hunched down, like their hair kind of going just like haywire all over their shoulders, right? Like their eyes are wide as that shovel passes overhead. What do you do? I think I see in the distance this Jaron uh, question mark and Oka question mark um, thing going down. Uh, and before I set out to do this journey altering, journey-altering move, um, I guess. Uh, I'm going to grab Kane and maybe, like, swoop down and drop them off, because uh, that seems like an important place for them to be at this moment. Throwing, just, like, grabbing them and throwing them over his back. Like a sack of potatoes? <laughs> I love that, okay? He yeah. He can't be that heavy. You hoist them up and you throw them over your shoulder. They're a little shell-shocked from the shovel, from a Biku arriving, all this lore drop, and then they sort of shake their head as you begin to flap your way across the battlefield toward Jaron and Oka, and they're going, a car dude, Dewey, I, you know, I can, I can misty step, you know, I, I don't need, this is outrageous. I, and they're sort of like thrashing a little bit, like kind of embarrassed. Then do it. They poof away off of your uh, shoulder and they appear at the edge of the perimeter between Oka and Jaron. And then I think Dewey uh, sort of crash lands. He rolls a little bit um, as he hits the ground and then finds a place to shelter and then uh, uses information overload again on himself to contact Dusty and ask about this journey. Okay, yeah, make an arcana check. Arcana or religion or history, I'll let you choose. 
23. You're trying to open a link to Dusty and like get in their mind and like talk to them, right? Okay, with a 23, you tell me, is the link extremely temporary or is it extremely unstable? Give me that unstable. Okay, <laughs> I knew you'd pick that. Damn it, I don't even why I give you these false choices. Okay, as you open up your brain to the weird, to the everything, to the nothing, the anything, and the something. It's it's just like it was earlier. It's an information overload. I think we see your pupils blow wide and like fill with starlight and whirling cosmos and atomic breakdowns and black holes collapsing and dwarf pan planets expanding into nothingness, into oblivion, into everything. And then boom, you're back in that room. You're still sitting there. You are Dusty. Dusty is you. Uh, the person, the woman has left the room. You're just alone in here, just four white walls. But this time, Dusty feels you and you feel Dusty. You're sharing consciousness. And you sort of see on one side of your eye, the battlefield bleeding black back in. And on the other side of your eye, like the white room bleeding in, like two images superimposing themselves over each other. And when Dusty slash you say, huh? You hear it coming out of both of your mouths. The journey. The journey. What is... What is... This journey. This journey. D d d and you feel something brimming on Dusty's mouth, and they can't push it out unless you say it with them, too. D d Dad... Dad... It, it, it... Is... This? This? You? You? The, the journey. 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 What, what? What? Was? Meh. Meh. Uh, and Dewey, at that juncture, you feel a sharp spike of pain. <laughs> Stab down through your consciousness as like being both out there and in here is like ripping your soul apart. And Galtanger's doing everything she can to like hold on to both sides. So I need you to make a constitution save. 13. 13 or 30? 30. 30. <laughs> 30, that's good. Uh Galtanger, I think the fact that you're talking to your sword son is rooting you and you sort of shrug off the pain, but some of it does still pierce through. Uh, you're going to take 35 points of psychic damage uh, as that spike just drives through your cranium. But uh, that spike of pain, ironically enough, I think clarifies you. And then you can hear Dusty speaking in full sentences without dragging you along, I think, like uh, a V in the wake of a speedboat. And you hear Dusty say... J the journey, Dad, was was made by fate and magic, and I'm waiting here for them. But what one of them is late or something? They don't really run on time. Speaking of which, I met time. They're a very weird person. Uh, what's happening? I can kind of see two places at once. Dad, is this hurting you? It's all right. You're doing great. Okay. What What do you need to know? From me, uh, it's starting to hurt me too. I don't think I can hold on to this for very long. How do we, ch how do we change all of existence that is journey? <laughs> and your sword son, who is not seven months old, pauses pauses there in the waiting room, in the perceptual waiting room, and says, "God's dad, I don't know. I guess we just ask." 
Let's go. Them. The precepts. The the precepts that made all of this in the first place. Boosh. The connection breaks, it snaps, and you stagger back into your own body, Dewey, reeling from that. And now we're gonna cut across the battlefield to Sitlali. Okay, so Sitlali is with Lilith. Lilith is theoretically possibly going to be on our side soon, question mark. Sitlali needs, or no, Lilith needs the faux god jar? The Faux Forge, yes. Her eyes are like fixed on that clash between Jaron and Oka. Specifically, she's looking at Jaron. Specifically, like the mother's blood eking out of their pores, their huge jaws, their gnashing teeth, their eyes brimming open on every section of their skin. Something about mother's blood seems to be that final component to help her isolate her raw nerve. And I think as they're moving, uh, Silali just kind of goes, you mean mother's blessing? How fortuitous, we need it gone. Uh, and I think shoots a message to Dewey, who can hopefully perceive it in this moment, that just says, I need Fauxforge, uh, trust me on this. It's important. And I think while waiting on a response for that, if it's cool, cast message to Gentle, who was still in the air, that just says, uh, Moonbeam, we don't have much time and we need to not uh, be punching oblivion. Uh, So, darling, if you could just um, not and also maybe give me some cover here because I am uh, being eaten alive and also trying to convert Lilith to our side. So um, it's a lot. Also, have you seen Mercy? And then I think they are just moving and covering Lilith as much as they can. And also they are vaguely looking for Mercy. Because uh, okay. I have not seen Mercy this entire time. Okay, let's go to Dewey's message first. Dewey, as you're reeling, I think from the spike still deviating pain and little bright radiant fractals across your mind's eye, you hear Sitlali's voice beam in, almost like a soothing, if slightly anxious, salve across like that pain just shattering across your consciousness, and you hear their request for Faux Forge. I think just with a reaction, you can toss it over to them or like respond to them somehow. I go, are you sure? 110%. And he tosses Fauxforge over to Silali. I love it. Silali, you could just catch Fauxforge in the air, right? It sort of hurdles this perfect arc across this like blood strewn, ash strewn battlefield and boop, lands perfectly in your outstretched hands. And then the next message, I think, pings over to Gentle. And you, Gentle, you hear Sitlali's request. How do you respond? Uh, that was a lot of things at once. Um, cover you, got it. Um, in terms of mercy, I can try to, I have, uh, I have an idea. Um, and similar to what I did in Davatati uh, at the uh, conference, where I used a key point to uh, make my voice extra loud. There has to be like some sort of call that uh like the hounds have. Um, is it I think is it a howl? It it is. Gen- yes. <laughs> Just the biggest a woo. Uh- <laughs> I love that. Gentle, do you peel like peel away from oblivion? I assume you're gonna continue that on your turn, but like I assume yes. you're gonna follow what Sitlali requests, right? Yes. 
Incredible. Wonderful. And because I have the mobile feed, I don't take any attacks of opportunity. That's true. Oh, I love that. As you start to turn and you let out this howl, uh, Sitlali, you hear it cutting across the battlefield, and I'll give you advantage on your perception check to find mercy. 28. 28. As this across the battlefield, as Gentle's howl breaks across the horizon, you hear Bud howling in response, and then you hear another howl on like the other side of the stage from like a deep throated kind of like raspy cracked roar. Mercy's voice. And you hear her howling in response and I think your eyes lock on her. She's swinging her greatsword, slashing down no fewer than like seven or eight different empty beasts that are her size. Uh, she's just like a whirlwind of death and violence. And she's fighting side by side with Squeak. And Squeak is like riding on her shoulders and is reaching into her pouch and throwing out this like menagerie of magic from this bag of holding at her hip. It comes out in these lambent plumes of dust and then turn into howling, swirling gouts of flame. Also like ghostly wolves and like spears of ice. Just all kinds of random magic that she's just grabbed from all across Endake and she's just throwing it out in like a haywire mishmash. I think Salali shoots a message to, I love that Salali has message now. It's so much faster than sending and it doesn't have a word count. Um, just shoots a message to Mercy of like, give him hell, babe. Uh. <laughs> And I think across the battlefield, she turns and sees you and she has this bloody grin on her face, like one eye crinkled, the other one still obscured under her eye patch. And you hear her say back, that was a lot faster than usual. I mean, mind message wise, uh, and you hear Squeak cut in, like she's also picked up a, a phone on this like conference call. And she goes, you're distracting us shit, Lolly. But thanks. And there's a like a whirlwind of flame as Squeak throws out like a firewall and like blasts like five of the empty beasts away from them. Squeak, we're gonna talk about the weave when we're done with this. And then they go back to uh, <laughs> protecting Lilith and trying to <laughs> get uh, them to closer to Jaron and Oka. I love that. I think in that case, your defense role should be related to protecting Lilith. So I'll let you choose either a con save, a deck save or a strength save. So not one of those, <laughs> based on your face. None of those are good. Can I get something based on my paladin fighting style? Which is protection? Uh, interception. Okay. Uh, I'll give you advantage. I'll give you advantage on your roll. Okay. Okay, okay. Okay. For 20. Natural, natural 20? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Um. <laughs> Which one is the highest? Constitution, uh, so 23? 23, just a plus three! I love that. Uh, but with a nat 20 on your defense roll, that means you take no damage at all. Uh, and you're also able to like grab like a kind of narrative boon. So I think what this means is you can just get to the fight where Kane, Jaron, and Oka is with like no added like extra turn or anything like that. And you hold your shield out and Lilith is sort of hunched over like a hollowed out husk or specter of a woman, right? As she's just like clinging, I think onto you and you're shielding her like over the raining hellfire. And I think we cut away from you, Sitlali, and go to our next PC. Who's gonna be Vasanti? Uh, when last we saw Vasanti, she was actually just about to fall to the ground because she had taken a major blow, but then things happen and she's he healing up. So you see her starting to fall and then she catches herself on the ground and she can feel herself regaining her strength, getting patched up. Even the giant 
claws and mouth that are coming out of her stomach seem to be like at least coming back together a little bit as her body's fighting you know the mother's blood that now she has thanks to Jaron uh, and uh, she's she's is looking at Rev and she still has in her hand the card from Gamble which was the lover's card and it just continues to light up in her hand and glow up her arm and also like she starts glowing like green and I think because she's in front of her lover uh, Rev I think Rev even starts to glow a little bit of like uh, the purplish color and that continues to glow and for a moment Rev feels like her eyes are playing tricks on her as she sees Vasanti sort of it's like she's crossing her eyes and Vasanti kind of splits in two and then another two so there's four of her as she uses the lover card to cast a mirror image so now there's four of her um and she's going to use that as her defense for this role you know um which one's the real one you got a 25 percent chance and uh and then you know mechanically she would use sorcery points because she's going to cast an actual spell now and she's going to take a look over the battlefield and see you know the hordes and hordes of of empty beasts running amok and i think she's gonna find a particularly an area of empty beasts that still haven't gotten addressed by all of their allies who are coming onto the battlefield and she's all four of the vasantis are gonna raise their hand towards this particular horde and send a a bright uh, beam of light, we'll say that it's red, uh, into the middle of this horde as she's going to cast Delayed Blast Fireball. I that love that. Is just going to explode in that area. So I think instead of me making a deck save for that, why don't you make just a spellcasting attack roll? Okay, well, in that case, it's, it's, it's a 19 still. Oh, so close, so close. Oh, that's too bad. Okay, so deal max damage. So what is max damage on delayed blast fireball? Uh, 72 points of fire damage. Okay, 72 points of fire damage. I think what that means is there were these titans that were pummeling oil on water, right? Which was this shimmering uh, oil spill of an atropic beast of, of Mahu, kind of molded into that of like a sea serpent or a leviathan. And I think that your delayed blast explosion sets off near that fight. It not only absolutely demolishes like a platoon of chicken boys, tooth spitters, uh, howlers, even like a face stealer is caught in the blast to get wiped away like ash, like nothing. It also is like that final explosion that takes out that particular entropic beast. And I think it falls to the ground underneath like the snapping jaws and pummeling fists of these gigantic and draconic titans, as well as uh, smolders into ash from the fallout of your explosion. And that thing is dead. It's gone. Uh, and I think Rev looks at you, huh, sees that you're like brought back to life, basically, that you're like no longer literally on the brink of death. She holds out Grim. It apparates in her hand and she says, Vasanti, I know we have a lot to talk about and I have a lot to answer for, but there are souls on this battlefield that need reaping. That thing is preventing it. And she looks at the seed of annihilation in the stranger's massive body climbing out of the chasm. I have to do this manually. And all these people dying, they're not like us. They don't have tethers. They need me. They need the Reaper. Will you be okay here for just a minute? Vasanti looks at her. You do what you have to do. Whatever you do, I understand. 
In life and death, Visanti, I'm yours. And she turns and ripples in this like column of black feathers and appears on like various parts of the battlefield, reaping souls from fallen soldiers, right? As well as like titanic specters crumbling into nothingness as they take one too many punches, rips, tears, gouges from various empty beasts as well. She's just blitzing all over the place, making sure their souls aren't consecrated to the empty. Uh, so at the end of your turn, I will give you advantage on either a charisma save or a deck save. I'll take the charisma save. Go for it. Um, 30. 30? Jesus. Okay, yeah, I think that means you have three mirror images of yourself, right? I think that means only one of them is hit and you don't take any damage, right? From the fallout, as you're ducking and weaving, these like empty beasts attack your mirror images and they like weave out of the way acrobatically with this grace, like t flipping and twirling and somersaulting like Visanti does. And only one of them is piled on by I think like a massive face stealer and also a hydro flare just rampaging. And that one just poofs into nothingness, but you're fine. And so are the other two of your mirror images. Uh, and I think that's the end of your turn. We're gonna go now pan across the battlefield to a kind of smoldering crater on the ground where we find Voska. Yeah, you gotta do me dirty like that again? In the smoldering crater? Voska in the smoldering crater. Body just hunched against broken stage wood. Now it's just this Voska-shaped hole on the ground kind of groans as she's brought back from the brink of unconsciousness and witnessed, did not hear, but like witnessed that interaction between Rev and Vasanti. And she turns to the other half of risk and reward on the other side of the battlefield. She pushes herself off of the ground, picks up Parable, and if I may, Connie, because she played with the notes back in Arc 7, Voska is going to channel the Song of Tungal, and for her bonus action is going to look towards Jaron and say loudly, as she has once said to a proud Triton woman, in this game of risk and reward, let's tilt the scales. And we'll give you bardic inspiration. It is a d20. Channeling the song of Tongal as she is da she stands up and starts dancing. Weaving a Parable around on her shoulders. And Parable is just a moving instrument on its own. Playing this inspirational orchestral music. And then she pulls her flute from her waist and starts playing as she looks towards Gentle and with my action, cast haste. And she says, we need you to move faster. And, and just like looks at you and just starts playing this incredible flute rift so that you're able to just start moving faster, using still the scales of the Song of Tungal to just support class you and just Haste the monk. 
Gotta haste the monk. Yeah, oh my god, that's deadly. Uh, I think as you fling out that bardic inspiration to Jaron, we see through your eyes like a golden thread, that relationship, that bond, that tether you have with Jaron, fling out from your hand as you outstretch it, boom. But this time the weave is imbued with magic and music. We see that thread wobble and produce a note, a note that perfectly encapsulates Jaron's soul. It's just ding, like wavering in the exact harmonic tone that is Jaron Cotter. That flings out. And then I think as you look up at Gentle, the same thing happens. A thread flies up to Gentle and it wobbles with music, with sound, with tone, with harmony, with breath. And we hear Gentle's own tone ring out and note just sort of like come out crystal clear and wrap around them and gentle. You feel adrenaline surging through your soul. You feel hypercharged, right? You kind of feel a little bit like you imagine Oblivion must have felt when they got pummeled by those countless infinite eye beams, right? Just supercharged, ready to take on the whole fucking world. And I think at the end of your turn, how are you trying to ward off the literal thousands of monsters? I am literally Connie dancing around them because I'm using rope darts. It's not just about attacking people head on. Rope darts is about controlling the flow of the battlefield by not allowing your opponents to have space. So Vasca is literally dancing and while she's playing the flute, which is very sexy of her, like uh, having parable just moving around the hinges of her joints she's it's effortless for her as she just allows parable to move between potential energy to kinetic it is it is, and and she's just dancing and she's just not allowing these empty beasts to have any space while she's That's- on the battlefield fruity as hell i'm actually gonna uh ask you to make both a charisma and deck save so add your bonuses for both Good thing you let me do that, because I rolled a natural five, so that is a, uh, that'd be a 24 total. 24, okay. So I think what that means is we see just this flurry of perfect offense and defense, right? As you're playing your flute, empowering your allies, your rope dart parable swinging like too fast for any normal eye to track. As we see beast after beast after beast lunge up onto the stage and get blasted to smithereens against your perfect web of defense, I think. A couple of them make it through. There's just so many of them. And I think in the resulting splatter of mother's blood and the gnashing teeth and the couple of you who do break through your defenses, you're going to take well oblivion is uber charged so it's that's gonna be i think okay a little bit of damage here and there right like maybe like 20 points of damage here and there from splatters and and cuts and bruises and whatnot but a huge lumbering empty beast i think sort of roars and pile drives itself like onto the stage at you it's big it's all limbs and arms and teeth and hair and eyes and gnashing nails and claws and long rippling tails and horns and it just barrels through you like a bulldozer uh, going through like a beautiful glass construction uh but i think you're hit by it but you're able to like turn and absorb the shock and like keep going uh but that's gonna deal an additional 50 points of bludgeoning damage and let's say the 20 was poison so 70 total <laughs> yep i've resisted the poison <laughs> god damn okay so that's 10 so 60 total i'm a unt <laughs> baby the snady bitch look at me i'm the snady now i'm the snady now <laughs> I love that. So as Vasca is twirling on stage, drawing some empty beasts to her and empowering her allies, we're actually gonna pan up to one of said empowered allies. Gentle, 
You are humming with adrenaline. You feel like your blood's about to burst out of your fists in the best way possible. What do you do? Okay, so Sitlali needs help, and I can move uh, faster than light at the moment. So I think that's that's an easy choice. Um, yeah, full-on flying in dynamic entry style. I love it. What? Just I just want to know what's your speed right now. Um, haste doubles it, right? Yes. 140 without dashing. For six seconds, someone quick do the math of how many MPH that is. Uh, okay, without dashing. Gentle, you are able to fly and maneuver wherever you want to be. I think maybe you like float and touch down right next to Sitlali, uh, if that's where you want to be. Can I, can I add a little bit more flavor? Go for it, flavor it up. Have you ever seen Common Rider? Do you know what the writer oh kick is? <laughs> I do not describe it. Um, it is the drop kick from heaven. Uh, it is just finding a single empty beast and just landing, hitting it smack dab with a like full on landing slide. Yes, do you want to try to pummel an entropic beast? Like one of the big ones? Or are you yes. going to take on smaller fry? Yeah, okay. I've, I've already taken out one. Uh, <laughs> the second one, why not? So currently menacing the battlefield, there are six remaining. There's the puppet, the nightmare, the paradise, the darkness, the grave digger, and the storm catcher. The puppet sounds fun to hit. Yeah, it's the one that taunts Vasca. So it could even be at the base of the stage as Vasca has just been like pile drive by that huge bulldozing beast. And as you write yourself, Vasca, you see like like a freaking common rider, avenging angel, gentle pile driving this beast. So I assume also make your attacks. And if you get anything by pile driving something, I'll give you an uh, advantage on your attack rolls. So you have double the chance to fish for a crit. Okay. The odds are pretty good, because it's a 5% chance of getting a nat 20 if you're rolling 10 dice. Damn it, no nat 20, but oh, no nat okay. 1 either. That's good. Okay, so what's max damage for five attacks on the puppet? 90. Okay, okay. noted. Um, Four attacks, and that hand is... of harm, and one more punch, so yeah. As you, describe to me what it looks like as you like pile drive this thing. Um, I think it is, uh, for dramatic flair, uh, especially because gentle like kind of mess with wind a little bit, I think it is sort of creating a bit of a spin around like my foot as I am like just careening in, almost like it catches fire, and just hits it smack dab and like almost drags it with just sheer weight and force. Yeah, we see this glitching shadowy humanoid silhouette, which to you. I think looks like it glitches between the form of every single person you poisoned back in Moreau's in that village, just glitches through all of them, all of them. You recognize your friends, your family, your grandparents, uh, peers. It just glitches, glitches, glitches. And then your wind wrapped foot, bam, pile drives the marionette at the base of the neck and it like hits the ground and there's this massive welling of, of red dust and crimson pebbles just scattering across the battlefield, knocking more than a couple dozen empty beasts out of the way and crushing them under its massive umbral bulk. 90 points of damage is not quite enough to finish it off, but coming out of the smoke of the dust as this puppet tries to jerkily like yank itself back up with the lines of poetry at its joints, we see Bud. Armored Bud. Gentle, what does Bud's dog armor look like? Um, oh my gosh, I've never... I think it's gold. I think it's gold and simple, honestly. Um, there's probably like little bits of it around like the uh, little feet uh, that sort of look like little thread holding it together. 
Um, and it is, I think, simple, clean, and elegant, meant for him to move quickly. Um, yeah. I love it. If I may add, I think Bud also has a helm on, and the helm has, like, rubies and gems inlaid, which was Sybil's touch, because Sybil was like, we can't go too plain. Uh, so Bud rips through the air in a perfect arc, snarling and howling through the base of his throat, and rips into this thing, and is enough with, like, Bud's just vicious attacks to shred the last of this entropic beast into empty dust. This thing just explodes into a plume of nothingness and evaporates. And so the puppet is slain. Gentle, you drop next to Sitlali, I think, like gently onto your feet, right? Um, you land. Was that enough help? I think if you allow it, uh, Sitlali just goes in for a kiss. Of course. Ugh! Oh, and as literal, like, explosions go off in the distance, right, and, like, blood rains from the sky and bone ash drifts across your bodies, the two of you embrace and kiss. So gentle. Empowered by Sitlali, I think, next to you, close to you in a way that you've never quite been close to them before. How are you staving off the darkness? How are you defending yourself? I think it is pure... Just with the haste, I'm trying to be a wall of, like, pure speed and power, not letting anything get past, like, an imaginary threshold I've made. Sounds like a deck save to me. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Good at those. Can I have advantage for gay? You know what? Yes, advantage for gay and haste. That makes sense to me. I never get to have advantage for gay. I'm so proud. Uh, Not quite a nat 20, but it is a 29, so, you know. 29, okay, so close to cracking that 30, Uh, but gentle, yeah, as you're empowered by this haste holding Sitlali, I think you break away because you, like, your your spidey senses tingle, like, you feel the hairs on the back of your necks rise, and I think as you turn just in time to see the gravedigger pummel the point of its shovel into the ground, and you see the slain corpses of soldiers that Rev hasn't quite gotten to yet, rise. Uh, we see the corpse of, of Indakin soldiers just like lift up off the ground, like zombified almost. And their eyes are kind of like blank. Their jaws are kind of slack. And there's this clear corruption veining through their arms, mother's blood, empowering their corpses to act on Oblivion's behalf instead of Indakin's. Uh, and I think these zombies literally fucking charge you. Uh, and the, the closest one is like three feet away, right? Like as your nexus at Lolly and Lilith is also there, by the Okay? Uh, and I think as they charge onto you, you put up a wall of perfect defense. And you're like batting off like dozens of these zombies, like protecting Sitlali, right? Whirling, twirling, like f- full kung fu fucking movie. Um, so the total amount of damage you're going to be taking from these zombies is going to be 70 points of bludgeoning. All right. Uh, so as we pan away from gentle fighting off like a literal, a literal army of zombified and docking soldiers, we are going to pan over to Oka. All right. Last we left Oka, they were leaning into the emptified Jaron Cotter, biting the shit out of their arm. And I think as their blood connects and Oka just can feel his ribcage, can feel all of the bones distending and cracking, can feel all of the blood, can feel the tether connecting the two of them, can feel everything, anything, all of him, there and not there. They understand, I think, 
if you'll allow it, Connie. They know that they tried. They tried to accept keepership and it was too far gone. They can smell it in the blood. They can taste it in their mouth. They know how deep the corruption runs all the way down to the soul. And these two feelings rise up in their chest, send, change, desperate, violent, everything. And it's Celian pulling at mother's blood, corruption, their own death, the way that their soul shattered. They're a necromancer, perhaps the finest necromancer Andake has ever seen. When somebody dies, mind, body, and soul for a moment split. Soul goes to the after, body stays, mind becomes nebulous. Jerron Cotter is tangled with Mother's Blessing, but maybe, just maybe, in the moment of death he wouldn't be. So Oka leans their head forward, and they peek over their shoulder. They see Cain, they see Sitlali, they see Gentle. They hear this howl, like, rising up above the fever pitch. They turn back to Jaron. Can you hear them calling us home? I think you hear a growl in your ear, low and resonant. But when you look at them, they blink all of the eyes at once, and a couple of them change. And I think that's perfectly in tandem for when Oka blinks and their god eye also mirrors Jaron's. And I'm going to use my time stop feature as everything just kind of slows down. Oka takes the hilt of Dream Hunter. Death is not the end, Jaron Cotter. I love you. And they are going to stab him in the heart. Deep all the way down to the hilt. And I'll roll. I'm going to use both my attacks at once, if that's okay. Yep, so. just see if you get that crit. I got the crit! I got that 20! I got that 20! Uh, I'm going to use my advantage on my first attack, just, I don't know, just because, my advantage from Vasca, just because. I fucking did it again! I fucking swear to you! I fucking swear to you! Love, love fucking wins! Oh my Love fucking wins, Connie. It's a threat and a promise. Take a picture. Take a picture. What? The Oka dice at this crucial I'm literally moment. shaking. I'm standing up. I'm out of my chair. Okay. Okay. That's over 200 points of damage. Somewhere in the 270 points range. As I think, if you'll allow it, as Dream Hunter punches through on the other side of this monstrous form of drawn, I'm in a lunge position now, I can't sit. Uh, on the other form of this monstrous drawn, the tempest, the storm wolf explodes out of their back with Jaron's heart in its mouth. Uh, and it pulls around like this huge storm swirling and circling and explodes into Oka's back as the halos click and time comes back to itself and they hold Jaron Cotter's heart in their hand and they pray for the first time in decades Oka prays 
for him to stay. That's my turn. See what the fuck? Oka, make a constitution saving throw for me. I maybe should have saved that. Um, oh, sorry, I'm still freaking out. I should have saved that advantage. Uh, that's a 10 total. As the beast form sloughs off of Jaron's body, as Jaron Kader dies, Mother's Blessing begins to, I think, flake off of him and onto you and like slough off of you on like toward the ground in a puddle. And as it like ekes across your skin, you are going to take 140 points of necrotic damage from the fallout. That's fine. Elka stands there as the blood comes down and they let it rain on them. You can feel Sen inside your body swelling with pride and pain. The pride so enormous that it dwarfs the wound, the hurt. And then we pan over to Jaron. Jaron, I think that amount of damage is enough to insta-kill you. It is. I have max 150 HP in this form. That's true, and I think- I don't even need to calculate it. With max damage plus two crits, that's over 300 points of damage from Oka. So that is an insta-kill. So, Jaron Cotter, how do you die? I think when Oka slipped Dream Hunter in between their ribs into their heart, like they're tucking a love letter into their pocket, he, instead of letting go like you normally would, feeling the pain of this magical sword literally kill them. I think Jaron clamps down even harder on Oka. One last attempt to be close to them, one last attempt to be together, knowing, I think, that he is going to die. And I think, Oka, when you see this mother's blessing falling off of them, flaking off of their body, you start to see their monstrous form, I think, pull away and fade into itself. The nine tails that they have start to come together into eight, seven, six, all the way until it's single tail that looks exactly like the one that Jaron has. And their eyes start to blink. And as they close one by one, they all disappear until in your arms on the ground is Jaron, the person that you recognize person that you killed and with his dying breath heart ripped out of his chest Jaron looks up at you Oka and there's peace on his face he smiles at you says thank you my wolf I will never leave you before he dies. Jaron Cotter. Death is a funny thing. Oka's right. The mind splinters from the body, splinters from the soul. And you, no keeper as you are, can feel that soul beginning to drift upward and outward. It's 
peculiar. It's like you're in your body looking at Oka and you're above Oka looking at your body. It's like you're in your mind perceiving the blood, the smell of ash, the screaming voices of soldiers, the clanging of steel on flesh, on bone, rending hair, skin, teeth, lungs. And it's like you're inside your soul and outside of your soul at the same time. Death is a conglomeration of hypocrisy. It is diametrically opposed ideas and embodiments holding on at once. And then it starts to not hold. In that moment, you feel them. Scod and Nectus. Somewhere in this miasma, in this soup of entropy and life and death and wound and blood and gristle and bone and hope and love. You feel the gods. As your soul deviates, separates from the mother's blessing that shatters off of it, that flakes off of it, like ink flaking off of a brush as you whisk it around in clean water. You feel Scott and Nectus, outstretched hand, reaching toward you. And Jaron moves forward immediately. No hesitation whatsoever. And Jaron Cotter, what does it look like as your soul joins Scott and Nectus and turns you keeper? If I may have my magical girl transformation moment. Jaron's outstretched hand, it's his prosthetic hand that he reaches out to grasp onto Scott and Nectus's own. And as he does that, I think they can see all of it, everything that they have been through. It has led them to this moment, to this moment right here. This was where he was supposed to be all along and they can feel it. And I think the, the magic of the weave of the gods starts to move through them and as if there was a gust of wind, I think his long white hair uh, flows behind him and starts to braid itself together. And as it's braiding itself, you can see this um, maroon or ornamental branda start to weave itself into his hair, elongating the braid even further than it actually is, with silver coins forming and dangling at the end of it, each with scods on one side, Nectus on the other, sort of clanging and clinking together. And his clothes, I think, changed to be still the same sort of wintry palette of silvers and blues, the rosy threads that we recognize, but there's something Nabalian, I think, that gets added to this. Something about symmetry, something about patterns. Uh, you can see that his shirt um, has changed into this like sheer lace uh, shirt that he is wearing with the uh, embroidery of sort of like fl uh, floral patterns, geometric shapes uh, all around that is quite literally spilling off of the fabric. The embroidery starts to come off um, and it starts to sort of like move away and it's like constantly flowing out as if there's a never ending thread that is putting his clothes together. And you can see that uh, he has these uh, leather straps sort of like all over um, his body, um, harnesses, chest harness, a leg harness, sort of putting it all together. The way that you would imagine a dominatrix meets like a royal 
<laughs> Meeting a royal dignitary is the best way that I can describe the way that it looks. And to top it all off, John has this like one shouldered dubata uh, that kind of like hangs off like a cape with the same flowing embroidery hanging off of their shoulder as they become the keeper of Scott and Nectus. Magic washes over your body, cradled by Oka. Still, I think, simmering in a puddle of that mother's blessing around your legs and feet. Uh, magic washes over your corpse and ripples down it in sparks of purple and green and red. And as it washes down, we see these changes, I think, like rotting themselves over your form, the hair, the debata, like every, every aspect of it, the holster, everything. Uh, and your soul, which is above your body and also in it and also outside of it at the same time, you feel it sort of move backward, even though you're trying to move forward. It's almost like you're going toward a light, but you're like the more you struggle toward it, the more you're like pulled back into a warm embrace of darkness. Your soul goes warm. And Vasanti, your keeper pendant, up until now unclaimed, goes warm as well as Jaron Cotter's soul takes residence, just like it had been planned by the Paragons and the Keepers. Slowly, gently, like a maestro sliding fingers down a scale, Oblivion floats onto the ground, their feet Touch the blood-splattered, white ash-strewn rock of the Badlands. Their hair is a fury of gold, their eyes shrapnel blue. She looks mildly annoyed. A titan, several titans, charge her immediately. Full gigantic forms rippling like light on water, spiked clubs raised overhead, throats brimming with ancient war cries, and Oblivion flicks two fingers dismissively. And these titans turn to dust. And the breeze carries their desiccated echo across the battlefield. And also crossing the battlefield now is Oblivion, stepping delicately over corpses, over shattered hunks of rock, puddles of blood, both black and red, the fallen bodies of caravans, cannons, war machines. She picks her way across the bedlam with prim detachment. Her eyebrows are relaxed, and still, her jaw unclenched, her gaze steady and focused. The violence, quite literally, doesn't touch her. The chaos of the battlefield bends around her, impossibly, like light bending around an anomaly. Her head twitches suddenly, like she's trying to exorcise a very persistent fly. So, this is the power of everything Andake has to offer. Your ancestors, your forgotten sibling realm, your gods. How touching. You know, I don't mind a heckler or two, an uninvited guest, but they better wipe their shoes. Or shall I remind them and all of you 
the kind of mud and filth and blood they've been trekking around. Your gods have hurt you, have failed you, have abandoned you, or have you forgotten? She raises her hand and snaps her fingers. And the six on the horizon turns to a five. And the battlefield vanishes. Oka, Sitlali, you stand inside a literal mirror dimension. And endless expanse of your own glassy reflections shining, shining, shining infinitely into every direction. In every facet, every crack, you glimpse a different version of yourself. A different, splintered, bleeding timeline. Yourselves as children, round-faced and giggling, making angels in the snow. Yourselves as adolescents awkwardly proportioned, all elbows and hormones sprouting into adulthood, yourselves as you are now, scarred, radiant, broken, colorful and winged, impassioned and drained. Yourselves as you will be one day, older, grayer, wrinkled, pulled down by gravity and so many lifetimes of what could have been, what was, what never shall. Every iteration, every possibility, every age of your own identity fragmented into odd, unknowable angles. These reflections are you. Yes, but they're also not you. They're your own memories viewed through a foggy, broken mirror made by a seething, lonely hand. And as you turn and whirl and stagger within this dimension of endless mirrors, the infinite versions of yourselves coalesce like cards being shuffled into a single unstable form that peers back at you with a jagged silhouette and wide, puffy, crying, sobbing eyes. Yourselves as youths. Scared, hurt, friendless youths. We see a younger Sitlali curled up into a ball next to a younger Oka doing the same. You can feel the pain of your shared broken childhoods seeping through the shattered glass, coloring you with scars into the people you are now. But those scars are still open. They're still bleeding. You see them leeching out of your pores in golden and crimson rivers, and you're still wounded. So in this mirror dimension, I want to know, what do the two of you say to these child versions of yourselves? If it's okay with you, Connie and Quinn, I think maybe Oka and Sitlali are standing like back to back. And Oka leans their shoulders against Sitlali's where they can feel wings that could sprout, wings made of magic against their own. And they reach back and grab onto Sitlali's hand and squeeze just once before letting go and moving forward to their own mirror where they kneel down 
tilt their head a little bit, and they can feel tears on their cheeks mirrored in the tears on that Oka's cheeks. And they say, Hey. Hey. What do you... What do you want? Just a friend. Here to... I don't know. Sit with you. It's never good to cry alone. You just sitting here think that's gonna make me feel better? I've been alone all this time, even though I have sisters and a mom and a mother-father, I... There's something so different about me, about us. I just don't like who I am. I don't fit in. That's okay. Why do you have to fit in? Because, because it hurts not to fit in, not to be the perfect prince, not to be the perfect older sibling, the perfect child. It hurts. And I hurt other people. And that's, that's all I'm good for. That's not true. It's not. That's not all you're good for. Inside of you, there's endless possibility. Everyone has the propensity to change. Anyone can change. So you can be whatever you need to be. You can be alone. You can pretend to be perfect. You can be angry and you can cry. You're allowed. You can do all these things, but you can also change. You're allowed to smile. You're allowed to make friends with people you don't expect. You're allowed to fight and to hurt and to get your heart broken and to break other people's hearts. And you're allowed to be a monster and a ghost and you're allowed to grow. You can do all of that. You can be all of that. It doesn't mean you're bad. Bad is not a thing somebody can be. It's a choice. So you get to decide. What are you going to choose? Sit lolly. Your back pressed against Oka's, you see yourself huddled up as a child inside one of these millions, infinite reflections of yourself. What do you say to them, even as Oka talks to themselves? I think Sitlali watches for a little bit. I think Sitlali at first is a little overwhelmed, which doesn't happen very easily or very often. And I think... (laughs) I think they fight the urge to turn around like they did before back in Zhukai. And I think they manage just barely like that time to not turn around. And they take a couple of halting steps forward and they just kind of awkwardly like sit. Like they start to kneel and then they just sit. They just sit like on their ass on the ground like this is happening. Okay. Um, And I think they reach out and they like 
tap on the mirror like a little bit um, to try and get babysit Lolly's attention. Babysit Lolly, similar to baby Oka, is kind of huddled up with their knees drawn up to their chest. Uh, They're face down, so you can't fully see their expression, but their shoulders are quivering, uh, hair falling into their face. Go away. I don't want to look at you. I don't want to look at me. Yeah, that sounds like something I would say. Um, fuck. Oh, you're a kid. I shouldn't. Well, but you're me. So whatever. Um, I. I mean, you could close your eyes and like still look at me and talk to me. I guess. What do you want? Your mother doesn't tell you that she's proud of you, does she? And why would she? Does she have anything to be proud of? Yes. And it's her loss that she doesn't see it. That causes baby Sitlali to peer up through the pastel bangs and look at you with those big yet small watery eyes. What do you mean by that? She has plans and ambitions that used to be hers that she's thrust onto you. And you're exceeding them. And she can't admit that. Because she's jealous. And that's a lot to unpack. That's a lot to put on a child. So I'm not having children. Um, It's not fair to you to put those expectations on you things you didn't necessarily want but you happen to be very good at it's okay to take a break I'm told no yeah I'm pretty sure yeah it's okay to take a break it's okay to take a break and I think Savali is also realizing this at the same time as they're saying it they're like it's okay to take a break um because you don't have to be everything for everyone anymore. You're enough as you are, as yourself. You. You're enough. I. But if I take a break, if I stop, then what if I what if I fail? What if I miss something? And what if because of me, everything fails and everything goes wrong and everything goes bad and it's because I didn't do enough. I didn't look enough. I didn't study hard what enough. If, I didn't what if, what if, what if, what if, what if that's all you can think about, right? Yeah, that doesn't go away. But you are gonna get better at knowing when to entertain the what ifs as opposed to letting the what-ifs reduce you to a pile on the floor. Like now? Like now. So, what do I do if I don't want to feel like this anymore? You gotta go be yourself. You gotta go figure out who that is. Right now you're your mother's child. Maybe you need to leave and figure out who you are on your own terms. Am I... Am I gonna like who I turn out to be? Yeah. I think you are. 
And I think simultaneously, Baby Zitlali and Baby Oka, on opposite sides of the mirror realm, stand up. They uncurl from the little balls that they've been holding so closely, so frightfully to their chests, and they rise to their full, what, four feet, five feet of height, and look up at each of you. And Sitlali, you see your own eyes brimming with tears still, but now hands reaching up to wipe them, sniffling, adjusting the hair, looking at you up and down, not judgmentally or fearfully like they once did, peering through those bangs, but almost with a new kind of understanding perspective. And Oka, you see that too. You see the younger you with long, long black hair, perfectly braided, right? A perfect dueling sword at their hip, squaring their own hips in a perfect dueling stance, and then looking at you, allowing that stance to relax into something a bit more casual, a bit less guarded and careful all the time. And the younger Oka, their eyes are no longer smoldering upon you with regret and burden and stress, but almost a kind of excitement looking at you at who they could one day become, embracing the monster instead of trying to hunt it down inside of themselves and kill it. And then both of you, or rather all four of you, simultaneously hear a familiar voice brimming out through the cracks in the mirrors, singing outward from the blood and the golden divinity leeching from your pores, Sen's voice. Shuhai and I, we couldn't fix the cataclysm. We were stuck in it. Stuck in our wound, in our perceived failure, in our regret. And then, you came along, Oka. You and Sitlali. The two of you showed me that we could change. And we showed you the same. And appearing in every mirror shard, every reflection, a rabbit, a fox, a wolf, a goat, a horse, a person, a ghost, a demon, an angel, all these myriad forms of Sen blooming uh, upward behind each of your child selves, standing there as though to reassure them. We already know what the worst could be don't we? We've already lived it. We're in it. But the worst? The worst is boring. The worst is easy. So why not hope and fight for the best that's yet to come? And all at once, just like that deck of cards again, all these forms of Sen shuffle into the same silhouette and ripples into being in front of the two of you actual tangible forms and we see a rabbit with antlers and then the rabbit turns and we see a fox with antlers and the fox turns and we see a rabbit and a fox both antlers on either side of its red furred white furred face come our friends need us don't they and Oka takes it lolly's hand again and before they go through the mirror together Oka over their shoulder goes you're gonna be okay I love you. And they're talking to their younger self, they're talking to Sitlali's younger self, and they're talking to Sitlali. And they're talking to everyone. And they step through the mirror. 
And as the two of you step through the mirror, that feeling of love, compassion for yourself, and determination for the future carries you forward into a new space. We wipe away from this scene to Dewey. Dewey, you stand in the middle of a field. Grass rolls beneath your feet. In the distance, you perceive mountains stretching gray peaks toward a quite rapidly darkening sky. In this field, there is a cottage. You're standing on its front porch. It's a familiar cottage, actually. Nabalian in design, with stone shingles and wooden poles. You recognize it pretty immediately. It's Uwilani's home, Hana's home, and once upon a time it was your home. And through the glass window you see silhouettes moving. You hear two voices, a child's laugh, a woman singing. There's something else here too, Dewey. Uh, something smoldering in this vast field. It's a gur, half constructed or perhaps half destroyed. It's wooden bones exposed. It's on fire. Smoke, hot and scentless, vents infinitely into the dimming sky. Sitting in the middle of this gur, untouched by the flames, but surrounded by this inferno, are several women. Some of them you actually recognize. Selim, Abiku. Some of them you don't. And standing at the threshold of this burning gur is Toktoa. Uh, in one hand, she clutches a bridle, though there's no horse around. And in the other hand, she clutches a lit match. And Dewey, you and Toktoa, I think you notice each other at the same time. And her steely eyes fix on you. Take in the cottage behind you, the forms inside, the dark glass. And for the first time since you've known her, since you've met her, Dewey, you see her gaze waver. <sighs> what... What is this place? Cardu, Dewey, we... We should run. We should leave this place. We should get out of here. If we run, maybe we'll survive. Maybe we'll live. If we stay... And her sentence trails off. But her eyes drift westward, where you see a blanket of darkness of oblivion, beginning to fold over the horizon, approaching both the homestead and the gur, vanishing the light. What do you do? Dewey says, did you, did you light that place on fire? I, and she looks back at the gur, looks down at the lit match in her hand. I must have. We were on the battlefield and then we were here and, yeah, this must have been me. It's okay. It, it doesn't matter what you did in the past. We have to stay here and fight for them. S stay? N no, don't you see the darkness? We have to We have to run. We have to get out of here. No more running. This isn't who you are. Dewey, Quirk, I have never once in my life run from a fist fight. I've never, ever turned my back on war, on battle, on violence, but... But, and she trails off looking at the women in this burning gur that she had set on fire. It's, it's so hard to stay, Dewey. I don't, I don't even know what to say to them, much less what to do. 
What would you say to them? And she gestures at the cottage, at the voices inside. All I know is that I love them. And take it from someone who has run away from this many, many times in my life. No more running. Fear and resolve flashes through Toktoa's eyes. And she looks like she's she wants to run, but her feet don't move. She squares her posture to look at you. And as soon as she does, I think that darkness is like upon you. It eats the field, it eats the sky, it eats the grass, it eats the cottage, it eats the gur, it eats the flames. And you're scared. I think there's a part of you that fears it's going to eat you too. And then comes the light. Burning, bubbling, thrumming, humming in your chest and Toktoa's twin points of sunlight. And Galtanger, I think, balloons outward from both of your sternums and lights up like a flare in the darkness. And both of you hear her voice galloping like hooves across an open field, pounding through this air, roaring outward, say, Fear once drove everything I did. My hooves fleeing my heart, pumping in escape my blood, golden like running sunlight. No more, no more shall I yield into void, shall I collapse inward like dying star, shall I flee from the long unyielding dark, and neither shall you. And the light explodes so bright that it pierces your eyes, and yet you see Dewey. And on the light ballooning outward, we cut to Abiku. Abiku, you're lying down on something semi-soft, semi-cold. The starless sky winks above you, shot through with veins of purple cloud. The smell of dirt fills your nostrils. I think at this moment you realize you're lying prone in a hole of some sort, a rectangular one, let's say, about six feet deep, the perfect length and width of your body. As I think you instinctively push yourself to a stand, kind of clamber out, dirt cascades from your shoulders and pebble onto the ground. You're in a graveyard. Somewhere, somehow, a river gurgles, the crooked fingers of cypress trees and willow tears obscure the horizon. Your tombstone has your name etched in it, in Ba, but it's been struck out, like you have not been afforded your final rest. Deep gouge marks mar that rock. And as you look around and take in this space, you recognize some of the names on some of the other graves. Captain Law. Queen Undu, the members of your artillery team, Jam, Yuriko, Shrinyi. There's a noise, I think, intercepting this, like a gasp, and then a scrabble, and then emerging from an adjacent grave next to yours is Rev. She sort of pulls herself in a single clambering motion out of the hole and wobbles to an unsteady stand, grave dirt cascading off her shoulders as well. And her mismatched eyes fall on you, widen, and then fall onto a grave nearby with a name that isn't one of yours. 
Leaf, dream I. And Rev falls to her knees in front of this grave and clenches her fingers into tight fists on top of her thighs. I go over, I sit down next to her. If she lets me, I'll put a hand on her back. Um, I assume this was somebody you knew? These are all people I knew. I hate this about myself, Abiku. I hate that I know exactly what Oblivion is trying to do here, but I can't help but fall for it. Over and over and over again, tripping into my own grave. And I look back at the graves. Oh, is this... Okay, so this is like a trick someone's played before. In another way, in another life, in another time, yes. Well, just because you know it is a trick, it doesn't make it hurtless. That's why it's a very good trick. What is, what is, what are they trying to do to us? Can't you see, Abiku? Why am I? Why are you? Why are we still here? Why are we still here? Revenants, zombies, ghosts, but they're gone. You know, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. I'm sure you've spent even more time thinking about it. You've been up longer than I have, but at the end of the day, I don't know that it matters. What matters is that we're here and we can help people. And what if the greatest help I can give anyone is to walk willingly into that void so everyone else can live? If that is what you think you need to do, I am not you, Rev, and I cannot be you, the same way you cannot be me. And I will not sit here and tell you how you can and cannot live, or should or should not choose to walk into that void, but what I can say is that a lot of people love you. I am one of them. You are very good at swinging your safe. I, I am still getting the hang of it. And for now, they need us. I... I'm scared, Apiku. Not of... Not of dying. I've never been scared of dying. Not even of nothingness, I think. I'm scared of... living past this. Because... I miss her, Abiku. And she looks back at the gravestone marked with Leaf's name. Every day. It doesn't get easier. The grief doesn't get smaller. I just grow around it. So, if we win, if I live, if we all live, I don't know if I can handle all of this grief all the time. Can I tell you something? Of course. When I was alive, my father died in the war. And I didn't think I would ever get over it. And to be honest, I didn't when I was alive. And then I came back and I didn't remember. And then I remembered. And it is always there. And I won't lie and say it can magically go away or anything like that outside of something very bad that makes you forget, which is not what you want. 
it is important to carry it with you because it helps you take a next step forward. I'm sure your time with her helps you with your time with Asante. <laughs> These ghosts we carry on our shoulders hurt Abiku, but maybe it's something I should stop trying to run away from. Ah, oh, fuck, it's gonna hurt like a motherfucker, isn't it? Yes, but... And Abiku stands up and puts, a hand, and puts a hand down towards Rev. We are pretty strong people. Rev looks up at you, looks at your hand, looks back down at the grave with Leaf and the open grave of hers next to it. Seems like she's considering the two, lying back down or getting up. And then she clasps her hand around your forearm and lets you pull her up to a full stand. And as that happens, we hear like the fluttering of raven's wings all around the two of you, like the whispering of a bird song and wind and breeze gusting around this graveyard. And the two of you hear the raven queen's voice, that whispering, radiant, darkly lucent divinity as always say, my children, my friends, Life and death are faces of the same coin. You are not so far removed from the ones you have loved and lost. What binds you? What transcends all planes, all universes? Abigu is right. It's love. Revenant, my dear sweet mist, you and I have been misguided. Throwing ourselves into the void will not bring them back. Not Leaf, not Druzba, not my Fox King. Perhaps the way to honor them, as Abiku says, is not to die, but to live despite. And force. The wind and the flutter of raven wings cascades upward, upward, parting the crooked fingers of cypress trees, revealing now a star-strewn sky, and we cut to Gentle and Vosca. The two of you stand in a frigid cavern, the cold taunt of the ice settling deep into your bones. This bite is chilly, even by Morozin standards, and the two of you are standing elevated on a dais. Frozen teeth of stalagmites punch upward from the ground, and stalactites drip downward from the ceiling. There are no tunnels here, no entrances, no exits, no points of ingress or egress, just you, just them, and just the threads. Golden threads radiate outward from your bodies, haloed in somber light. Each thread hangs with a different weight. Some are thicker, others multicolored, still others weightless, like air, like breath. You recognize, both of you, instinctively what they are. These are the bonds that tie you to your friends. You feel their presence thrumming within the delicate weave of each thread. Oka, Visanti, Dewey, Rev, Abiku, Sun, Mercy, Sitlali, Dr. Aluso, Squeak, Costas, Root, Wuming, Bud, Atalanta. As each presence, each name, each loved one registers on your hearts, you feel the threads begin to pull. 
pulling, tugging, heaving at your souls in opposed myriad directions, like you're both pieces of yarn being picked apart by many greedy hands into nothingness. All of these obligations, all of these ties, these burdens, these duties, these guilts, these loves, they pull at the two of you, threatening to unravel not only themselves, but you. What do the two of you do? I think, gentle, if you would so allow, Fosca clings to you. I think, like, as these threads begin to like threaten to unravel the both of us there's like this gut instinct of like holding on to your forearms as we're being pulled to opposite sides just wait and she just holds on to you and she's just trying to like figure out where we are before moments before we were just in a battlefield and she is just trying to like look around to figure a way out. I don't know, but, um, be okay. We'll be okay. We'll be okay. I got you. You got me, right? I got you. I have okay. you. And I think as Vasca is gripping onto you, Gentle, she is glitching out. Like, there's, like, moments where, like, a reaction is going was meant to happen, but it just glitches out, and you could almost swear maybe a shadow of a chuckle, but it's like immediately snuffed out like a candle in the wind. And she says, "This is so ironic. I spent so long hiding behind the beautiful words. What a beautiful lie." I unraveled during the cataclysm. I unraveled when I left Atalanta. I unraveled at the unspooling. I unraveled at Atalanta's death until all I had keeping me taut was my destiny. <laughs> and again, there's that like shadow and a glitch. And even that was a lie. Beautiful words masquerading behind Oblivion's machinations. And I here mean, it is, happening again. <laughs> Poetic irony. And I think each time she says that, the chuckle is, like, slightly more heard. I understand that all too well. Um, you had words, I had, well, a mask. Every time I felt I was going to lose it all and break down, I had to keep going because, well, someone else is breaking down. Uh, whether that be the hounds or Bud or anyone, everyone, any excuse to worry about anyone who wasn't me. <laughs> um, I, I know that all too well. And I think like at that point, there's like a, a hum that Vosco recognizes of the temptation of Atalanta's embrace that pulls at her more strongly and resonantly than every other thing here. I miss her. And I don't think there's anything or anyone on this 
world that can fix that. That's that's incredibly fair. I don't I've never really lost anyone like that. I I don't know. I've always been apart from people, but I know what it's like to have people you care for more than anything else, and the best we can do is keep going for them. Uh, we have to help save the world, and there's always more time to think and have memories of her. I think, as you say, we have to save the world. Vasca reaches out, if you would allow her, and holds your cheek. She says, No, we want to save the world. Yeah. You and I side by side. Of course. And I think wrapping around the two of you as you touch each other, hold on to each other, look at each other, and feel, I think, steady in your belief in each other, these pulling threads, these grabbing binds, slacken. And there's, I think, a relief that courses through both of your bodies as these threads slacken, and the thing wrapping around the two of you is a voice, you realize, a thread, a song, a god's throat. And Nitbuza says, her voice echoing in this chamber, echoing through the vast caverns of both of your consciousnesses, yes, there are burdens, there are guilts, there are unspoken harms and resentments and angers in every bond that connects us to each other. But there are also joys. There are strengths. There are loves and laughters and music. We do not unweave the good from the bad. We do not sever ties because the weight is too heavy. These bonds bind, yes, but they also heal. They also lift. And like a wind, an icy wind that doesn't chill either of you, sweeps up through this cavern, and you see light, almost like the pinpricks of stars, begin to blossom up on the ceiling of this space. And I think streaming in through the light are two new strands that are a different color, a different make, a different size than the other threads binding you to other people because these threads feel desperately familiar. They're parts of you. One of these threads drifts down to Vasca and the other drifts down to Gentle. And as it drifts down into your hands, Vasca, you feel, I think, a gurgling of laughter, a appeal of humor bubble up inside you. <laughs> <laughs> and she just like wraps her arms around gentle as her giggles bubble up like sea foam. I love that. And gentle, the other thread drifting down into your embrace fills you with this kind of warm, fuzzy, open widedness. Like suddenly you're noticing the stalactites, you're noticing the ice rhyming on the pillars, you're noticing Nibuza's voice taking on a timber you've never really heard it take on before. You mentioned, did you mention stars as well at one point? Yeah, I think the stars would does it. As gentle 
moves to tears at seeing and being able to appreciate the beauty of all of this again. This, this is what this is what I want to fight for. This, us, everyone. On that, I think Nabuza's bonds wrapping tight around the two of you, the lights becoming wider, 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 this cavernous sky opening up with pinpricks of astronomy. We cut to Jaron and Vasanti. The two of you sit on the same side of a long wooden table. A jungle ripples around the two of you, its edges blurring like heat vibrating off the surface of pavement. An emerald inferno, imaginary and real. Across this mahogany grain, across this table that looks plucked out of a beautiful office and placed in the midst of wilderness, there are two chairs. One chair facing each of you. Drawn in the chair across from you, is Adam. He's smiling. His expression is dark. His hand is outstretched in some kind of malignant offer across the table to you, and in the chair across from Vasanti is Tiran. Tawny skin, hair slicked back, eyes burning and so condescending. His cheekbones, Vasanti, are slanted like yours, his skin pebbled in the same manner around the eyes, the throat, the forehead. As you look at him, I think you see so much of yourself in him. Those are the parts, for some reason, in this space that you focus on. Vaguely, like an echo, like the memory of a ghost, both of you hear carnival music. The synthetic fizzling of overlapping holographic faces, the creaking of a Ferris wheel. The two of you stare dead into the eyes of the worst choices you've ever made. The worst risks, the worst rewards, the worst flaws, the worst parts of you. What do you do? Santi looks across at Tyrion and then looks over at Adam. And then to her side to look at uh, Jaron. I've been here before, Jaron. I think Jaron's breath catches in his throat when he first sees Adam across the table from them. And they take in their surroundings, unfamiliar. They've never been here before. And they look over at Vasanti. Where are we? Vasanti looks around again at everything. We're in the carnival, where everything you've ever hated about yourself comes to find you. And them? Jaron looks over at Adam, at Tyrion. And without breaking eye contact from Adam, says over to Vasanti. Are they real? No, they're not real. They're simply your greatest fears looking at you directly in the face. And Tyrion and Adam say in chorus, neither of their gazes straying from the faces that they're taunting, their voices rising in a dissonant harmony. Just because we're not real doesn't make us not true. We are you. You are us. 
You are never anything but the worst parts of yourself. I think Jaron feels the same path lay out before him. The same one from Dabathati. The same one that he's been on this whole time. And in this forest, it feels like the well-trodden path. It feels like the easy way out to just do it again. To extend their hand, make the deal again. But as Jaron, I think, goes to lift their hand, as if to shake Adam's own, I think they hesitate and they like, they feel something almost like tugging them back. Is it the blood tether to Oka? Is it this tether to Scott and Nectis? Is it the bond to Vasanti? He's not quite sure, but there's something pulling him back. And I think instead, he reaches out his hand over to Vasanti. At the same time that Jaron is seeing that path, I think Vasanti is seeing a hundred and some years of being truly alone in Andake, the amount of decades of searching for her father, for searching for family, for searching for people that she feels like she can trust. And she looks across at Tyrion and feeling almost that same pull to Jaron uh, through Scott and Nectis and through their own bond, I think Visanti realizes that she's found. She's found what she's always been looking for. And one of those things is friendship. And she looks at Jaron and sees that friendship so clearly manifested through where they were at the beginning of their relationship together to where they are now. And Visanti extends her hand and grasps Jaron's. No more uncalculated risks. I think it's time that we reap the rewards. What do you say? No more trying to do it alone. We do it together. Together. And these images of Tyrion and Adam fizzle. They snarl, they glitch like ghosts caught in static, like they're trying to fight it. But then they holographically shimmer away and bleeding into their places, replacing them. A Ravi across from Jaron as grizzled and scarred the day she died. And across from you, Visanti, your mother, Paya. Ravi looks you square in the face, Jaron, and you see not anger, not resentment, not bitterness, but just a kind of open, staunch understanding. And as Ravi speaks, her voice blends into Paya's, right? Ravi's grizzled tones melding into Paya's soft and high, gentle voice. This darkness will always be a part of both of you, but so will we. And then their voices sort of break apart, and Ravi looks at you directly, Jaron, and says, You've still got a long way to being forgiven by my spirit, kid, but you're on the right path now. I'm so sorry for everything, Rafi. <laughs> you better fucking be. Don't worry, kid. I know you are. You've already paid for it with your life. Good enough for me. 
And Paya looks at you, Vasanti, and you see her eyes are wet and bright and full of tears. Vasanti, you are everything I ever hoped you would be. I'm so proud of you. Vasanti looks in her in the eyes and just tears starting to form down her own face. I'm so sorry that I never believed you in life, but I will always be so proud to be the daughter of Paya Nakshurza. And swelling up, the carnival music turns into a different song. The disjointed grating accordion, like the kind of like seesawing jigsaw of the melody turns into something beautiful and flowing and fluid and harmonic and beams of light, green and purple and red swirl around both of you. And we see the images fluttering in static around you. One of a, a half elf with braided red hair, one of a lilac tiefling with a broken horn swirling around the two of you and Scott and Nectus say in unison, this darkness is not who we are and we are not trapped. This darkness is one of many hands we have all ever been dealt. And like any hand, we will be dealt another. And so will you. And Paya reaches across the table and holds your face in her hands, Vasanti. And she looks at you and she says, you're ready. And you feel draconic magic surging through your body, Vasanti. What does it look like as you shift? Oh my gosh. Ah! Oh my gosh. Uh, Vasanti's entire body just starts to grow and stretch out as her sort of, um, her face, uh, her nose and everything just sort of elongates and her mouth grows into this large entrapment of teeth and and, and fur and whiskers are sprouting out of her. Her mane of hair just seems to sprout all through her back until she's just covered in this draconic fur. Her red claw is turning real and it's joined by another one in the other hand and she's got uh, another set of legs coming in the midpoint of her body as she just grows and sprouts uh, these draconic wings that um, are just so massive to cover her and her, her weight to be able to fly in this form and she just lets out this uh, roar as her body is like um, uh, scales and fur of greens purples, reds and also sort of like this um, base of of icy blue and, and I guess more of that uh, Kelly green shimmer to it that she's always had from day one of meeting her I love that. As you explode into your full draconic form, I think uh, Duran is also swept up in this, not painfully, but you're like rising up next to Vasanti, I think, like surging out of this space. As the forest clears, the night sky cracks open and then exploding back onto the battlefield, folding into existence like ribbons of golden lace are the eight paragons and the eight keepers. Each of you brims with divine energy, your god shards smoldering in your souls, not painfully, not desperately, not full of rage and grief and guilt and burden, but readily looking stalwart, looking forward, the sky 
is crimson as always, that much is true. The eyes keep turning and roving, yes. Monsters snarl across the shattered stage, steel rings against flesh. Spectral titans clash against beasts of void flesh and void blood. Soldiers release clouds of arrows and bolts, and still, and still, as the 16 of you arrive back on the scene, a massive cheer balloons up from the mouths of Andakin fighters. Swords are raised aloft, cannons explode and fire draconic and gigantic mages bellow in their full powerful forms. And now we see Oblivion. She's taken up residence on the shattered stage amidst this careening, exploding arena. She stands on the shattered slats of wood, fingers threaded together underneath her chin, in a perfect study of a contemplative Dr. Aluso. But there is an expression that hangs wrong on the good doctor's face as the 16 of you appear. An expression of anger, dark and sharp like an assassin's blade. Oblivion closes her eyes suddenly, squeezing them shut like she's trying to stave off a migraine. And when she opens her eyes again, we see the irises flicker briefly from brown back to blue. And that angry expression has smoothed over like fillings in a wound. The 16 of you really are so persistent, aren't you? You really do have such awful timing. I was just about to put the pesky doctor to bed. She pauses, takes in all of you, sees your forms brimming with godhood, brimming with confidence, with a kind of backbone, a kind of growth, a kind of courage and morale that all of you into it she had not been expecting when she flung you out of space and time. And then that look of anger, I think, crinkles past the fillings of the wound and darkens her brow once more. Oh, I see. Going off script, are we? Rallying in the final hour. Don't you all know? Annihilation goes down so much easier when you don't resist. Please. And that please almost sounds genuine. Don't take this from me. It's all I have. It's all I've ever had. But you won't understand, will you? You still think there's hope, don't you? Well... If I can't put the good doctor to bed right now, perhaps I can put that misconception down instead. I'm done playing games. Good night, paragons. Good night, keepers. Good night, Endake. We've had a good run. Oblivion raises her hand and snaps. And that big glowing five in the sky turns to a four, turns to a three, turns to a two, turns to a one. 
This episode of The Second Stranger was edited by Connie Chong. Transplaner RPG is proudly sponsored by at Dimitri Opines on Twitter and ExplainTrade.com, a negotiation skills training consultancy, because you can't ask to roll persuasion in real life. Check out ExplainTrade.com. Please consider giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This helps so much with getting new listeners to find us. New podcast episodes drop every Tuesday. If you can't wait that long, tune into our live stream Saturdays at 7 p.m. U.S. Central Time on Twitch at TransplanarRPG. Also, toss us a follow on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and YouTube at TransplanarRPG. We also have a Patreon. Patrons get early access to episodes, character sheets, high-res art, and much, much more. And finally, a very special thank you to our Patreon Paragons. Alex, Brooke Bright, Brooke in Seattle, Charles, Chiacres, Cora Eckert, Hat, Conding, Lex Slater, Lyle and Peanut, Matt Sweeney, Purple Mouse, Riley, Spencer Critchfield, Scruffesis, and Target.